Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy. Today, we're gonna to talk food and culture. We have as an April guest, who is the Managing Director of the Culinary Institute of America's campus in San Antonio, Texas, where I'm not from, but have been spending a lot of time with my stepdad. Um, April, welcome to The Caring Economy. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here this morning, and I look forward to our conversation. I, I'm really excited about uh, what we've talked about previously. We have friends in common. Uh, Chef E. Felder at the Culinary Institute was my neighbor and pal for decades upstate. Um, and then by sheer happenstance, I was uh, with my dad in hospice in San Antonio and made my way to the Pearl District. And while there, I saw this transformed urban center with everything from hospitality, restaurants, uh, um, apartments and the like. And then the huge Culinary Institute of America uh, brand right there in front of me. And I had yeah. known about it through Eve, but had never been there. And I just thought, I have to get to the bottom of this. I need to see this place, even though it's COVID still. And I mm -hmm. need to find out how did this magical sort of portal come to be? Because it's unlike any place else in San Antonio, mm -hmm. along the river walk and all. So in reaching out to uh, one of the, the forces behind that, Kit Goldsberry, I found my way to you, April Guest. Yeah. Um, so like now that our listeners know how we got to know each other, um, tell us a little bit about uh, the Culinary Institute of America at San Antonio, and then we sure. want to talk about your own journey and how you got there. Sure. So uh, um, it's really been fantastic to be here in San Antonio. I've been in San Antonio for uh, 13 years now. The college, CIA, has been in San Antonio since 2006. And through the vision of Kit Goldsberry and his interest in bringing world-class education to, C to San Antonio is how CIA uh, came about being here. Um, so you, you mentioned how you've seen this transformed area, the Pearl. Um, I've been on the campus for, again, 13 years here and watched all of the transition from the time we were in one little building. The CIA was the one little schoolhouse that was here and the rest of the property was, um, had been uh, kind of dormant, so to say, for about a decade. And um, the vision of Pearl, the whole Pearl complex is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And the interest in enriching a community is, is really something. Um, and so the CIA being here is part of that um, kind of enhancement of the area, but really bringing world-class education, world-class culinary education right to San Antonio. Um, and it's been, you know, I've been part of that, that dream <laughs> for the last uh, decade and some, and it's been great to see the transformation of the city's food scene. It's been amazing to see the transformation of the opportunities that are there for people in San Antonio. You know, San Antonio is a big city, but we're really a small town. Mm -hmm. And I think anybody who spends some time here does get the feeling that it's a small town. So we have a lot of, you know, a lot of our students who are from San Antonio, their dream is to remain in San Antonio. So, um, you know, having education here available to them, they get, they get all of that right here. And the culinary scene has been fantastic. So, mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to say we had some part to do with that, but I really think it's a, you know, the talent was here. We helped kind of uh, dust that talent off and help it emerge. <laughs> there we say you were a leavening agent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's um, fantastic. So just to give our guests, I mean, sorry, our, our audience a little bit of context. So 
the Pearl, as I understand it, was a, a historic brewery complex and uh, has been through many iterations and owners through the years. But that's the, the crux of this campus. And then on that campus is CIA. And many of our listeners will think the CIA is the Central Intelligence Agency. Yes. <laughs> in fact, the CIA is the Culinary Institute of America, which is yeah. the leading hospitality and uh, culinary training institution. Um, both graduate and undergraduate in the United States with campuses around the world. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yeah, we have three domestic campuses, New York, San Antonio, and in the Napa Valley, and an international campus in Singapore. And we also have uh, uh, campuses abroad for semester study in Italy um, and Spain. So our students can go there as well for a semester of immersion in those cuisines. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. So uh, we'll want to dig a little deeper into that and how education happens in that in that discipline. But let's first talk about you, April. How how did you get there? What was your calling? And yeah. and you could touch upon the role businesses played along the way. Uh, you are an educator. You mm -hmm. are a chef. Um, but you've seen, I think, and helped execute that beautiful combination of purpose and profit. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so for me. Um, you know, those that know me have heard this story. There's never been a plan B. I mean, the only thing I've ever wanted to be was a chef. I did not grow up in a family that owned restaurants, but I did grow up in a family of business owners. So when you own a business, you are with that business 365 days a year, and you, you get a different appreciation for the dedication that it is to be a business owner and to work with the, with work with, you know, um, that mindset. And so, um, you know, my, my interest is culinary and has always been culinary. And so I was encouraged to pursue that dream, um, never discouraged. I do come from a family with some good cooks in it. Um, we were all avid gardeners also. And I think there's a fair amount to be learned, uh, particularly patience, because uh, when you're a gardener, it doesn't happen quickly. Um, and so all great things do take time. Um, so, you know, my, my way along the way was always, my focus was always culinary arts. And um, I, I got my first culinary education in Portland, Oregon, and my first professional job in Northern California, I had absolutely zero experience. I had passion, I had an interest, I had faith in myself, um, and I talked my way into my first position in a, in a fine dining restaurant. Uh, my first professional position. I had no right to have it. I had nothing on a resume that would state that I could do this, um, but I knew <laughs> that I could do this. Uh, and that's, you know, and that's uh, how I got my first position. And, um, you know, and I was inspired by the people around me who also, I think, just because they saw the passion in me, uh, it, it really uplifted all of us. We were a great team. I mean, we had some really hard work. It is hard work in the kitchen, but I'll tell you what, you can press on through a night of, you know, uh, of kitchen duty and give everybody a high five and a hug at the end of it, knowing that you made it, <laughs> you know. Um, so those were my earliest days. Uh, from there, you know, I worked professionally as an executive chef. My rise in the in the industry was was fairly quick. Um, my first job at like 19, and I was an executive chef by 27. Um, and then I worked several years like that. And then I decided I wanted to continue my education. So I returned to college at 30 <laughs> and became a student again. And, and I think that's a refreshing moment to kind of take, take a step back. Some people ask, well, what are you doing? You know, you're already professionally established. And, you know, my interest was in seeing, seeing what else I could do. I wasn't done. Um, and so 
I could simply keep working in the industry and, and I have a love for the industry. I'd never not want to work in it, but I also wanted to see, I wanted to challenge myself and do a little bit more. Um, and so uh, from there, I, I was at the CIA and I stayed on with the CIA after graduating from the CIA and have been with them since 2004. So, it, so and then uh, was it the kit? Goldsberry made started make his big investments in the Pearl and the Culinary Institute there around '94. Is that right? Or I believe that's when he he acquired the actual physical space of the Pearl Brewery, the historic Pearl Brewery. So um, the the brewery has been around for over a hundred years, um, and we came. He started to do the master planning and the planning of, of the whole Pearl property about that long ago. And then the real work started to happen about 13 or 14 years ago with the physical and the infrastructure being refreshed. So all of the, the buildings that are here, most of the buildings that are here, the historic ones have all had some type of retrofit and refurbishment. And then there's the new space. And so the idea of the Pearl complex is, is it's a live, work, learn, eat, enjoy. So everything that, that a community would need would be right here. Mm -hmm. On the ground floor, we have the public plazas, the place for gathering. Um, on the ground floor, businesses are the restaurants, the retail shops. So a place where, where people would come and go and enjoy the community. Farmer's market happens here. The restaurants are fantastic. And then up above the, the ground floor um, are the residential spaces. So a place where people can live and the offices. So it is possible to exist in this little community right here and not really ever go out. Um, pretty much all that one would need is, is supported right here. But the idea was to create a plaza, a public space, a shared space, a place of community, a place of convergence mm -hmm. happens right here at Pearl. Yeah, and you have the Hotel Emma there for those who mm -hmm. want to stay longer but not own there. And then yeah. it also struck me as a dog owner is very dog friendly. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as I understand it, Kit, uh, well, I know that Kit uh, founded and then sold Pace um, Salsa mm -hmm. to Campbell's, made a significant, I think, a billion or more, and wanted to give back to his community. Mm -hmm. um, his commitment to CIA was part of that. But what I also learned through you, I'd like you to chat a little bit about, is um, it wasn't just to create another school for fancy chefs. To the contrary, it was about working with local public schools and some of the most uh, underserved and disadvantaged kids, and to also elevate the the opportunities for those who are working in industry, but not necessarily at the management level or higher. Is that a, a fair statement? Can you talk? That is about correct. That? Yeah. yeah, it's really about education and opportunity for education that hadn't been there before. It's about recognizing the skill and talent of individuals who are in the professional kitchen who have never had you know, who may have been overlooked or not had the same opportunity to pursue higher education um, and advancement. And in some places, uh, particularly nowadays, you, you do need like a college degree to move into management positions. Um, although, although individuals who may be qualified for management may not have had that credential to get there. And so, you know, the whole idea behind, um, you know, not just us being here, but our connection with the community is to uh, really advance individuals who have not had equal opportunity for advancement, either through education, skill development, skill enhancement, recognition. There's any number of reasons why somebody wouldn't advance in the industry. Um, so what we do, one of the things that we do at the, at the Culinary Institute is um, we work closely with San Antonio Independent School District. 
And so I'll use that SAISD, so San Antonio Independent School District. So in SAISD, um, we, there are about 500 culinary students in high school, um, across several high schools. And this is one of the most economically disadvantaged um, districts in San Antonio. I think there are 17 school districts in San Antonio, so it is not the only school district. Um, but we've worked closely with them for about five or six years now. And our interest is in developing uh, the students like from the start of their freshman or sophomore year in culinary. Um, as many of them, just like me, had a dream, had a passion, have an interest. I mean, they, they just know it's in them. Um, and so they, um, through high school, we've, we've trained the CIA, uh, trains the culinary instructors um, and trains them to teach CIA learning objectives. And so providing those students in high school the opportunity to learn at a higher level, to be challenged at a higher level, and to see what they are possible of doing uh, with a culinary degree or with culinary skill. Um, so for the students do about three years and in the highest, they do four years, but the three years that we focus on are the sophomore, junior, and senior, because by then they, they pretty much know, you know, that they're interested in culinary arts. So, um, and we, we sort of like adopt a school program, you know, we, we support what's going on in the, there, we mentor and coach the instructors, we make ourselves uh, um, available to the students. We become present in their classrooms so that they can see, we take away the apprehension of what a culinary, what a CIA degree is, because I, under, you know, I understand there's a lot of apprehension mm -hmm. with going to a place as prestigious as the CIA. And so, you know, what's important to us is that we show them that they can succeed, that we recognize in them what's necessary to succeed. Mm -hmm. And we introduce them to us. You know, we introduce them to CIA chefs. We bring them onto our campus so that they can envision themselves here mm -hmm. um, or really envision themselves anywhere. If they don't end up at the CIA, that's, that's fine as well. Mm -hmm. They will at the end of their time in high school have skills that are very transferable into the industry. So they will be able to work within uh, the hospitality or culinary industry, um, even if college is not their first path out, out of high school. So um, in your great tenure in the, in the industry, how have you seen DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, how have you seen it evolve? I mean, it's very germane to everyone more than ever today, particularly in mm -hmm. business. And I wonder, it seems to me it's moving in the right direction. We see more female chefs than ever mm -hmm. um, in San Antonio, certainly because of CIA, we're seeing more people of color in the space, but is it, is it happening? Is it going fast enough? What are, what are ways to accelerate it? Yeah, you know, I think those are all great questions. And, I, and um, you know, in my 30 years in the industry, those are questions that I get asked, asked often. One, being a female chef, Mm -hmm. One, having been a female chef who was an executive chef, um, you know, um, I do think that there is change happening. I do think that things need to happen faster because we do talk about a lot of the same issues or problems or challenges or struggles that we've always talked about. Mm -hmm. The, you know, just just in you asking me that question 30 years into my my career. And knowing that I was asked that same question 30 years ago tells me that we have not made enough um, advancement. You know, I, I will be grateful for the day when individuals, no matter what their skin color is, their gender, their identity, 
are not have to they're, they're not asked those questions yeah. because they're seen as a talented individual regardless of all that yes. you know that that talent exists and it is not defined by the rest of that Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I don't believe we're making progress fast enough. I mean, I don't have answers on to how we get there faster. I do believe that recognition, conversation is what's needed. We need to talk about the things that we might feel uncomfortable talking about because we won't grow if we don't. We need to surround ourselves with people that, that challenge us, who know more than we do, who, you know, ask tough questions, yeah. um, because those are conversations that move us forward. And I believe that where, where the conversation stops is where the action needs to start, because I don't believe the action is happening fast enough. It's one thing for me to say, Yes, everybody has these rights. Yes, there are great, there's great talents out there. But if I don't employ people or policy that moves that forward, then I'm not contributing to the solution. Yeah. I'm reminded of my pal, Nate Garbus, who's been on the show. He's just a, a, a great chef as a hobbyist, but he's a government affairs person, professionally was with Target forever. And he decades ago had this idea before I think there were even food channels of having a public affairs sh show around food where you literally sat around and talked about these heavy yeah. issues, right? These important issues, mm -hmm. um, maybe not with knives in hand. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's an opportunity because food is, it's such a communal thing, right? And um, yeah. you have people's attention and um, I wonder if there's not an opportunity to explore something like that with CIA. Yeah. No, I, I believe, no, absolutely. We believe in family meal. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a time for all of us to reconnect. Um, and it's a great opportunity to explore cultures and cuisines that aren't your own. And then I think that's where conversation happens and, and that's where growth happens. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, today we have April Guest as our, um, as our guest on the Caring Economy. She's the Managing Director of the Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio. Um, April, I would imagine that there are there's a disconnect often with those who say they want to go to the CIA and the reality of what you offer, because there is mm -hmm. a sort of pop culture aspect because of the food networks and other things that have made it so, so appealing. But do you have to do a lot of, of managing expectations or level setting with folks when they approach the Culinary Institute of America? You know, not as much as I thought we might have to. I think that there are some um, some that just don't get the entertainment that's on TV isn't isn't really that close to what's happening in the industry. So I think you know, occasionally we'll get students who they usually they usually know right away. Usually within the first week, they're like, "Whoa, this isn't at all what I thought it would be." Like we're just sitting around having you know lots of fun and challenges and that all looks fun and exciting but that doesn't really uh it's not really what the education is <laughs> so um you know there there is a disconnect but what i you know what i do appreciate about the food tv food network and tiktok stars and all that is that it really has um I think it really has opened up the world of global cuisines and global culture to people who may not have seen it before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember cooking shows way back in the day and, and, and you know, Julia Child, and it was, you know, technique and skill and, and that really driven and, and that's wonderful stuff. 
Um, but I think what we see now is exposure to all the different foods, um, all the different cuisines, the culture. And I think that shows like Anthony Bourdain, the stuff that he did traveling around the world, going to mm -hmm. the places where those people are, where the culture is, where it's all happening and actually immersing himself in that setting to enjoy the food. I think people watching those shows has opened their eyes to be more, you know, curious about culinary um, and be more curious about food and be more willing to explore what they may not have before. Yeah, more curious about the other, whether it's other food, yeah. other, people, other cultures, I, I yeah. could do more. Uh, I wonder, uh, enter COVID, how has that affected your, your teaching and your engagement and your fundraising even? Do you, you're still uh, doing remote teaching, I believe. Uh, we, are, we are physically on campus um, as much as we can be. We've actually been physically on campus since June of last year. We have, uh, we have all the COVID procedures one would expect, health screenings, health checks, um, distance, all of that masking all the time. Um, but we've also um, done, we've also moved as much as we can to remote learning. So, um, you know, higher education has been slow to adapt to a, a remote learning. And I think last year for, our, for all higher education was sort of like, I think for everybody it was like an aha moment, like here, we can't just say, I don't like to be on video anymore. You know, I don't like to be on video. And all of a sudden it's like, well, that's your choice. This is how we engage. And so we all went through that kind of weird, awkward growing period and stage. Um, but we moved, we moved quickly. Um, and the college and the my colleagues, we all moved quickly to get us, get the students back into education as quickly as possible last year. I mean, we disrupted uh, in March with a full stop and we restarted in April of last year in 2020. And with online and within two months after that, we were physically back in space with our students. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, with, with the school district, with San Antonio Independent School District, those students are still, many of them are still learning remote and you, it's really a challenge to teach culinary arts where you can't, you know, see and taste and smell. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things we talk about in the kitchen is cooking with all your senses and, and you don't get to engage all those senses when you are virtual. And so I do believe that this last year has been, you know, not only an aha moment, but a moment to, to stop and think about what works in education, what doesn't work in education. And how do we get back to, to what really works? Yeah. But uh, we've been fortunate to be able to return our students to campus. That's awesome. And, and what about in terms of institutional advancement, fundraising development, how, how has that evolved with COVID? Has it been helpful to make the appeal? Has it been um, more difficult, can you say? There's no, there's no denying that the hospitality and food service industry has been, has been really hit hard by the last year. Um, the CIA is fortunate to have very strong partners um, in, in the corporate world. <clears throat> and so we've, we've relied a lot on their support. We have, the, and much of that comes from um, support both intellectually, what are they doing? How can they share, how do we share best practices? Um, but also corporate fundraising I know has been a challenge across everywhere and it has been for the CIA as well. Mm -hmm. um, particularly since you're, you know, since we are in an industry that has been hit very hard 
you know, um, buy that. That means those companies that would support us through in-kind donation or scholarship, um, travel programs, all of that um, has has been reduced. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I like about the, the CIA is that we're also very diverse in who our partners and corporates, uh, corporate sponsorship is. So, um, you know, we have opportunity beyond just the hospitality industry. And, and I think what's really refreshing about it is, is that everybody is eager to get back into dining out, being with friends. And so I'm optimistic that, that the year ahead will be, you know, probably, um, more significant in, you know, in our partnerships as far as partnership growth than it has been before. And I think because we all are emerging from this, we've all been made stronger by it and we've all built on those partnerships. Mm -hmm. When you say opportunities beyond the hospitality uh, mm -hmm. brands, and what kinds of opportunities does that mean? Sure. I mean, the, the CIA is, is, you know, we have, um, you know, we have our own brands. We certainly have our own like food enthusiast programs that are book publishing, media, mm -hmm. our uh, thought leadership programs, all of that. So I guess in, in some ways they're all still related to hospitality, but many of those programs touch more than people that are in hospitality. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think just the network that the CIA has beyond education and beyond hospitality is strong. Uh, sticking with the business side of things, supply chains have been so disrupted with COVID yeah. and even the Suez Canal. My sister-in-law, <laughs> Nina, who I've talked about, she's a big fancy seafood purveyor. Um, scallops are a real issue right now. <laughs> so yeah. how, do you, um, how do you educate students to the, the realities of a global economy and supply yeah. chain? You know, what's interesting is we have a course within our program called Foodways, and I'm glad you mentioned supply chain because I think supply chain was a word that everyone was just like, oh, that's just how stuff gets there, um, and never really gave it a thought. And then last year, we saw in a time of great need um, and in a time where we still had um, items and ingredients and we still had that coming, you know, available from farms. We just didn't have a way to get it to the people that needed it. So for example, I think you and I, when we spoke about this before, like the dairy farmers that were dumping, you know, millions of gallons of milk because they can, their supply chain, just, just from the cow to the package, <laughs> it only went into like 10 gallon packages or 15 gallon packages. And people at the store didn't need that. People at the store need gallons and quarts. And so I think the big aha moment for last year was you need to build resilience into supply chains. You need to be able to say, if we can't do it in five gallon, then we can do it in one gallon or two gallon or whatever, that there needs to be a plan B and a plan C built into the supply chain from the start, mm -hmm. because there, there, there the supply is out there, but the path to get it to the people that need it or to the purchasers, that is what gets disrupted. And I think that the, the, the class foodways, intro to foodways, uh, food systems, excuse me, was probably one of those classes where students are like, oh, I don't get it. Why am I taking this class? And then last year, it was one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, I get it. Because we didn't really have any real world. We might be able to have small scale examples of what a food system you yeah. know, and a supply chain is. But when all of a sudden, across all sorts of supply chains, there's huge disruption. All of a sudden, people realize 
Um, just like what's happening right now with the gas, the, the pipeline um, running up the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And just one little thing like that, we, we all of a sudden realize what we've been taking for granted. Mm -hmm. um, sticking with that, this, so the supply chains um, going full circle, literally in sort of the sense of circular economy, there's a lot of food waste globally. Yes. And, um, and I think of chefs in particular and hospitality professionals as um, as leaders who can help us make that a better reality or not so great. How do you inculcate in your students a sense of awareness and responsibility around food waste? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. It's been a topic for probably the last decade or so. And it's something where, you know, I wanna call upon, uh, you know, all of your listeners and everyone to, to do their part as well. Um, you know, I believe that when people start to push back on food waste and start to call attention to it while also recognizing their responsibility to it, I think that, that a lot can be done. So food waste, uh, oftentimes I think in the industry, what the focus has been is like, how do we turn the food waste into something beneficial, you know, mm -hmm. compost or animal feed or, you know, something else. But really, I think we need to be thinking further, further, you know, back and say, how did, how can we prevent this from happening in the first place? Mm -hmm. Because we know that the compost and animal feed, that's all fantastic, but that's not actually addressing the issue of food waste. That is dealing with a surplus that comes from the waste. It's a symptom, so, not a root cause. It, absolutely. So I, so, you know, we all have responsibility and, and, as chefs, I think we have responsibility to, I know we have responsibility to be focused on what we're doing within our own kitchens, our portion sizes, mm -hmm. working on 100% utilization of what we're doing, writing smarter menus. I mean, it comes down to, you know, just as a chef, sure, I can write whatever menu I want, but um, what I really, what we really need to be doing is writing menus where we are writing intentionally and deliberately to prevent food waste, where we are working on how do I, maybe I won't select that particular ingredient because I can only utilize 43% of it and the rest goes to waste. So what can I put in where I'm getting closer to 95 to 100% utilization and avoiding that waste in the first place? And even better, how do I get to the point where I am serving the right size portion for the price being paid where the customer finishes their plate <laughs> and everybody feels satisfied. I mean, it's, you know, my husband and I go out to eat often and we always split one entree because there's more than enough food there. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of places, they'll give you an abundance of it because it's like, well, it may not be the best food, but, mm -hmm. but by goodness, you've got the most of it. <laughs> Um, and a lot of that food just goes to waste. And so, you know, there is responsibility there on, on the chefs, on the, on the organizations that, that continue to support that. But also, you know, I think, again, like I started saying, is when people push back and say, you know, I, I need to own my responsibility towards this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's funny you say that Harlan and I, my husband, do the same thing. We share uh a main for sure, and maybe even one appetizer, sometimes two, depending because we if we know the restaurant. But I use that when we're dining with others. I use it as a teachable moment, not not in a, I don't think in an obnoxious way, but we're so socialized. Everyone has an appetizer, everyone has a main that I take that moment, say, you know what, we're just not going to eat that much food, so we're going to split. So it's a at the start of the meal. I say we're sharing, yeah. 
And then B, if there are leftovers, I take home whatever leftovers because I know that food waste is one of the top three causes of climate change because yeah. of all the power energy goes into creating that. And so it's almost criminal to me to leave food on a plate. Yeah, and we yeah. were taught as kids, clean your plates, right? But <laughs> as adults, we kind of got lazy, but now we've gotten back to that. So when I let people know that I'm happily taking a leftovers home because of the climate change, it's very empowering to know that one can help directly affect climate change by yeah. not leaving food behind, yeah. becoming aware of it. So I agree with you. We all need to be more aware. Yeah. yeah. And those are easy steps to take. I mean, you know, there. those are very easy. It, it, there's no disruption in, in the quality of one's life by doing something like that. So there yeah. really is no reason to not. And, and you know, to, to use the food um, in your own meal at home or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, but yeah. absolutely. Uh, I have one last question for you, mm -hmm. uh, April. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we have April guest with us today from the Culinary Institute of America's campus in San Antonio, where she's managing director. Um, uh, veganism, another big mm -hmm. thing. I'm, I'm an animal nut. I try to eat more um, vegetarian if I can. But here in New York, where I am now, um, 11 Madison, one of the more celebrated restaurants, just announced last yeah. week they're going to yeah. go vegan. Yeah. What say you about the whole vegan, vegetarian um, yeah. movement? Yeah, well, um, I, I like you, I find I'm an omnivore, so I find balance in many different, you know, eating many different things. So I'm not any one particular way, um, but I do love the way Plant Forward is becoming a focus and becoming mainstream for more people. Um, I, the, just the whole idea that there can be balance, that there could be more than just a steak in the middle of the plate uh, and a potato, <laughs> that there can be these really satisfying flavors from plants. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, and I think one of the things that we see this from is, is again, going back to an earlier part in our conversation where we are being more culturally you know, exposed to different cuisines, uh, many cuisines around the world, meat is not the focus. Meat is meat is a you know sort of like a side dish or a complement if it is in there at all. And so I think as as we have broadened our own palates, um, we have become um, more open to accepting different things uh, at the center of the plate. And I really think that the plant forward movement is is going to continue. Uh, I know that there's a lot of interest um, globally, again, going back to food waste and climate change. Um, there are practices in the food service industry and food production that, that need to modernize, need to become aware of their contributions and, and make changes. And, and again, there's no easy answer, but there are a bunch of little answers that we can adapt and, and, and do right away and start making real change. So. Um, that is so awesome. I, I, listeners, I think you might be with me and today hearing for the first time the expression plant forward, which I love. It says it all. It's aspirational. It's, it's healthy. April Guest, rather, thank you so much for being with us here today on The Caring Economy. Any final thoughts from you on the role of business and society or culinary arts or, or San Antonio, Texas? Well, San Antonio, come and see us. I mean, I think, again, we said that we're a small town. We are, we are one of the nation's largest metropolitan areas but we have the small town feel. And um, so there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. And if I can make any career advice to anybody, it's something I tell my students all the time. And that is make it happen. You have everything you need to make it happen. Uh, you don't need to wait for somebody else to make it happen for you. Own it, 
do it, make it happen. And it, it's, it's helped me <laughs> through my whole career. <laughs> so, but it's been a pleasure speaking with everybody today. You know, I welcome the opportunity to continue the conversation at any point, Toby. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, April Guest from the Culinary Institute of America's San Antonio campus, the managing director there. Thank you, April.